Hello everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Crash, the UK Geek Show. Otherwise known as Captain Roy's Rocket Radio Show, the UK podcast for the culture geek, technology nerd, and creative wizard. This is episode 288, recorded on Sunday, the 10th of November 2019, at 23.57.54. Yes, we are still on the right side of Sunday. I have just managed to squeeze in this taping of the show now. I was supposed to do it at 6, but I was still talking to my mum on Skype, so I couldn't really do that, and then afterwards I made dinner and promptly fell asleep. But I have just managed to squeeze this in on Sunday. And it's still Sunday. Only a minute and a half to go, but it's still Sunday. Let's see, what shall we start with today? Oh, okay, we're in the pre-show section, so non-show-specific topics. Let's talk about other things for a moment. What's been happening? Well, Diwali, Halloween, both have passed, and then there was Guy Fawkes as well. I drew the line at Guy Fawkes because it seems a little bit of an unpleasant thing to celebrate. And in any case, I'm on my own. So after mentioning those other two events on social media and on the podcast, also having a third celebration, which I didn't want to do anyway, Guy Fawkes that is, just seemed like I was being a bit too greedy about convincing everyone that my life is just so full and wonderful. Ah, social media. All joking aside, though, I think it's Remembrance Sunday today, according to my parents, that's what they said anyway. So a respectful Remembrance greeting to everyone. And now let's do the show. A little bit of a vanilla (laughs) alert. Although it's not that vanilla. What am I talking about? Dublin Murders. This is a BBC show that I have quite enjoyed. The first season of, that is, about two detectives who have some really quite deep and interesting secrets who are investigating a child murder. I found the show to be watchable, and I liked the chemistry between the pair. I also liked that smattering of ancient Irish mythology that was thrown in, and not really explained yet. There was, however, a fairly ridiculous moment, I'll try not to spoil, when the lead detective, you know what, I said I'd try not to spoil, but there's a possibility I might spoil this bit, so skip on 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. But yeah, there's this breakthrough moment when the lead detective cracks the case because of a chocolate digestive. And that scene was absolutely and utterly and ridiculously implausible. There's no way it would have happened. It doesn't even work within the context of the narrative. It's just thrown in and we're supposed to believe that this guy suddenly has this Mr. Monk moment. Didn't believe it for a moment. It definitely did not take the biscuit. And there is our title for this week's episode. Or this week's other episode. Because I'm doing two episodes a week now. Okay, next. Creepshow. 
I saw the first double bill episode of AMC's Shudder show. This is a 2019 TV reboot of 80s films of Stephen King short stories. And the loosely related and very, very badly rated 2006 film. I'm not sure if I've seen the 2006 film, but I've definitely seen the 80s films. And I saw them at the cinema. I thought the TV show was the very definition of cosy horror in my book. It's horrific, but not enough to give you nightmares. And by the way... I added that caveat in my book for a very good reason, because there are episodes of this show that are incredibly gory, but not disturbing, which would mean something to you if you're a horror fan, you'll know exactly what I'm getting at, but if you're not, and you're not expecting that, be prepared. The new show contains adapted stories from King, but also others including younger, trending writers like his son Joe Hill, and Josh Birdbox Malaman. I recommend Creepshow. I particularly recommend it because it captures the magic of those old pulp horror comics, like those from EC Comics. I think I even talked about this in a previous podcast, or maybe I just posted a picture up on Twitter, not sure which. But yeah, horror comics from the 50s, 60s, possibly early 70s, are really great, and you should seek them out. Though that's not telling you much. Maybe I should do a little section on those horror comics in a future episode. There is an episode of the new creep show that features werewolves in a World War II setting, which reminded me strongly of an old novel that I read of ages and ages ago. What was that called? I think it was The Werewolf Hour. No, it was... What was it called? Uh, yeah, okay, I just googled it. It's called The Wolf Sour by Robert R. McCammon. I read that years and years ago, and that's what this episode reminded me of. And finally, before we leave Creepshow, I have a completely tangential piece of trivia. What a surprise. There is a dollhouse in one of the episodes that contains a model kid, and he appears to be playing a Rickenbacker 4000 series bass. That is, if you're unfamiliar, Lemmy of Motorhead's weapon of choice. If it is that particular bass guitar, then that's a very specific rock reference from the writer Josh Malaman, which makes sense, as... Josh Malaman, as I mentioned earlier, is the author of Bird Box, and who is actually in a rock band. Okay, on to For All Mankind. This is Apple's excellent science fiction alternative history of the space age, in which the USSR makes the first moon landing, and then that forces the USA to rush and catch up. Or try to catch up, at least. I liked how they dealt with NASA's Nazi rocketry genius, Werner von Braun. 
The show didn't pull any punches in dealing with his questionable past, which was great, because for me, as a space nut, the man who was sourced via the Americans' Operation Paperclip has always posed a moral quandary for me. The show also addresses the very white, very male, hypocritical lack of diversity at NASA. I found episode 3 emotionally wrenching and brilliant as it redresses the injustice of the formerly scrapped all-female Mercury 13 program. I thought that the debate about one of the characters' sexuality, Molly, was very, very funny. And that's for all mankind. The second of Apple's new shows that I tried to watch was C, which is a diversely casted and original idea of a post-apocalyptic science fiction slash fantasy action show. It imagines a very different tribal and slightly Polynesian idea of future culture. But, unfortunately, the show is horribly executed. It has a boring script and wooden lead actors. I lasted less than 20 minutes. What a pity. Moving on to La Guerre du Monde, and that terrible piece of French that I tried to pronounce properly will come up later. Let me try that again. La Guerre du Monde. Now, although shortly the BBC will readapt H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds in a period drama, this is something else that has just aired. It is a co-production between Canal Plus and Fox, and is a modern, loose adaptation of War of the Worlds. And I really should give you a spoiler warning here. Okay, spoiler warning given. The killer cyborgs who feature in the show are uncomfortably reminiscent of a lethally armed version of Boston Dynamics' Little Dog, which, by the way, equally uncomfortably, could be really easy to weaponize. Don't do it. Boston Dynamics, don't do it. Or rather, Google, don't do it. Yeah, Google is not in my good books this week, as we'll find out later on. But anyway, back to La Guerre du Monde. It also features an extrasolar Earth-like planet, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence gone wrong, very, very wrong, undocumented migration, societal chaos and collapse, and has a really nice, nasty twist at the end of the season. Despite poor overall ratings from other people who are not me, I thought it was topical and interesting. My only criticism is that should have limited itself to one season. Oh, and if you are not bilingual in English and French, you'll need subtitles, because it takes place both in France and England. And that is La Guerre du Monde. Next, Haji Giri. Haji slash Giri. 
which in English translates to duty slash shame from the Japanese. This is a 2019 BBC show about a Tokyo copper who is unofficially investigating his supposedly dead Yakuza brother in London who has somehow killed another Yakuza member. And this starts a war between rival gangs in Tokyo. I thought Hajigiri is engaging, but the unsteady tone swinging wildly between tragedy and comedy in a show that clearly is not a black comedy, and the dance number as well rubbed me the wrong way. Oh, and finally, there is a scene that really made me laugh where a group of women take their ghastly revenge on a biker. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I also loved the beach scene. That's not all bad. Haji Giri. And I did watch the entire run. Next, His Dark Materials. This is a BBC adaptation of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. I thought it was better than the film that starred Daniel Craig, but... I think Daniel Craig seems more Azrael-like than James McAvoy. I didn't like it, though, because I don't like the plot of the books that these adaptations are based on. The Dust plot just doesn't grab me at all, and that same idea of a stifling and monstrous controlling church was something I had already been disturbed by through books like Richard Cowper's, by the way, Richard Cowper is a pen name of John Middleton Murray Jr., but yeah, Richard Cowper's White Bird of Kinship trilogy, consisting of The Road to Corley, 1978, A Dream of Kinship, 1981, and A Tapestry of Time from 1982, and Keith Roberts' Parvain, 1968, which still gives me the collie wobbles. That isn't to say I don't like Philip Pullman's work, as I really enjoyed his novella Clockwork from 1996. And that's his Dark Materials. I'm sure Philip Pullman fans will love this if they like the books. It's not for me, though, because I'm not really into those books. What's an adrenaline junkie bike career to do after a fatal wipeout? How about inheriting a weird box, partnering up with a lethal and sexy reporter, and going on the adventure of a lifetime? Join Geeky X-Rocker and his enigmatic partner in crime as they are drawn into the mystery of the century deep in the dark heart of London. It is a secret that will change their lives forever, if it doesn't kill them first. The Horus Box is a very dark, very funny, fast-paced, action-packed, suspense thriller brimming with pop culture nostalgia and unique characters. If you liked Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Goonies, National Treasure, and Preston and Child's Agent Pendergast series, you will love this high-octane and explosive page-turner as quirky and British as James Bond and Doctor Who by UK author Roy Martha. Oh, that's me. And this is my book. You can find The Horus Box on Amazon as a Kindle ebook now. Still in our culture section, the final item, The King. 
This is a 2019 loose Netflix retelling of Shakespeare's equally massaged historical plays Henry IV Part 1, Henry IV Part 2, and Henry V about young Prince Henry, a.k.a. Hal, a.k.a. Henry V. It's a very dark and gory and unpleasant in places retelling, but it doesn't shy away from the essence of the play, which is about how Henry changes when he becomes king. The reviews are mixed, but generally good, except in France, where I read in a Telegraph article written by Henry Samuel on the 4th of November, another Henry, that the director of the Agincourt Museum regards the film as ammunition for the British right wing and a glossing over of Henry, who he regards as a war criminal. In the article, Monsieur Christophe Gilliot says, I'm outraged. The image of the French is really solid. The film has francophobe tendencies. The British far-right are going to lap this up. It will flatter nationalist egos over there. Okay, what do I think? Well, the film may not be historically accurate. It does overplay the cleverness of the English and the stupidity of the French but it does not make the English nobility or army look like humanitarians. I'm fairly, actually I'm absolutely certain, there would be a nice cosy cell at The Hague waiting for Henry if they had such a thing back then. It's, on the other hand, certainly less propaganda-driven than the original play by Shakespeare or Kenneth Branagh's Jolly 1989 adaptation. For a film about King Henry V, made by Australians and Americans, the accents of the main players did not seem to be as irksome as they usually are, because for some stupid reason I'm turning into some kind of accent fascist, except that of Robert Pattinson. Oh dear. Robert Pattinson, who I usually rate as a really good actor, is utterly abysmal in this movie, playing an unpleasant stereotype of a villainous Frenchman. I cannot conceive of how he acted so badly in this film. I don't know if he was high or drunk, or has he just gone mad? I don't know. And this is a guy who's going to be playing Batman. What else? Oh yeah, there's this scene between King Henry V and one of his advisors that mentions regime change in this explanation that the older advisor gives. And I thought that was intentionally modern. And I thought it does lend the dialogue a bit of a modern air. I'm not sure if it works completely or whether it's a little jarring, but it was interesting. Okay, now let's talk about the young star, young-ish star. He's not that young, but compared to me, he's young. Bugger it. Yeah, Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet apparently had a similar childhood to my own, spending 
chunks of it in France with his relatives. But his French is excellent, whereas mine, as you heard earlier, is almost non-existent. Apart from the odd phrase, which I may or may not pronounce correctly, and being able to follow about 50% of French dialogue without having a babelfish surgically implanted into my lug holes. Yeah, so let's see. That show that I mentioned earlier, La Guerre du Monde and The King, both had large chunks of French, which I could follow. I didn't get every single word, but I could follow what was going on without needing subtitles. Though doing that did impose a little bit of a (laughs) cognitive load on me. You know what, though? I'm thinking that if I watch more French films without subtitles, maybe that's a good way to learn French, because I'm almost there. I just have to fake a realistic French accent, and one that is completely unlike Robert Pattinson's own stupid version. Yeah. Where was I? Anyway, yeah, Timothy Chalamet's French is excellent, as it should be, because he didn't waste his time in France, and he is a fluent French speaker. I thought his acting was good. There is a scene where he is preparing for battle, and he's obviously under enormous stress and fear, and that scene is so well done. Um, let's see, do I have anything? Oh, yeah, I'm just looking down at my notes, trying to focus. There is one thing that I found a bit odd. Maybe it's just me overthinking this, but I thought it was a little M. Night Shyamalan self-serving that the screenplay for the movie is partly written by the actor playing a retconned version of Falstaff in that he's now a heroic character, when in the play he is a drunken, cowardly oaf. Yeah, you've made the character that you're playing more heroic in the screenplay that you partly wrote. Hmm. Anyway, in conclusion, it's a grim and bloody and also well-acted and directed and realised medieval saga. And I am so very, very glad that I wasn't alive back then. If anyone ever tells you that medieval times weren't that bad, they were pretty okay, you'd be okay back then, no, you would not. And this is coming from someone who has actually taken part in medieval reenactments. I'm glad to be a man of the modern age. Let's now move on to technology, and Google is on the naughty step in the naughty corner, wearing the naughty hat. And so it has begun. Google has begun charging for storage. This marks, I think, the inevitable loss of services we previously paid for by having our data harvested. Yeah. Our data and all these dodgy arrangements... Google still, for some reason, don't think they're making enough money. And since they have users tied into their services and strapped firmly over a barrel, they feel it is safe to now charge for storage. So what do you do? For Gmail, you can set up IMAP and then use a desktop client like Thunderbird, as I do, to archive your mail locally and then delete old mail on Google's server. 
Ultimately, though, I'm very sorry, but maybe it's time you stopped relying on free, in quotation marks, and started paying for your own email and web hosts. I would recommend a similar strategy to use any of the free web services, even WordPress. Because, as Robert Heinlein said so long ago, Tan Staffel, don't be evil, do the right thing, don't make me laugh, and more on the Google apocalypse a bit later. Now, we are going to address a question or questions posed by a listener regarding so many different streaming services, maybe too many. And this series of questions was sent to me via Twitter from Saul Garnell at S-G-A-R-N-E-L-L who asked me these questions on Twitter on the 1st of November. And I'm quoting from his tweets here. What are your thoughts on HBO Max, Disney Plus killer? And can Apple TV Plus survive this more competitive field? He also asked, are Disney and WB Warner Brothers creating brand walls to lock consumers in? Will we see more consolidation of studios around big streaming channels? Can people afford all these new streams? Okay, those were the questions. Let's start off with HBO Max. HBO Max is nowhere near a Disney killer. Disney own the Star Wars universe, they own the Marvel stuff, HBO might have Game of Thrones and Westworld, but they are starting with new shows next year, which is later than Disney+, Plus, whose The Mandalorian starts in two days' time. Ironically, we're mentioning The Mandalorian, but I'll get onto that later. And... cost. HBO Max costs... US dollars a month, which is twice as expensive as Disney Plus. So I don't think HBO Max are a threat. Will Apple TV Plus survive? Yes. They already have a hit show, and they didn't limit themselves to family-friendly, which is what we thought they would do, and that's a good thing. Lock-in. Yes. That is what they are hoping. Look at Apple. Hardware, credit cards, and now TV. Look at Amazon. They own the entire world. Let's move on to consolidation. No. I don't think there'll be consolidation. Not nice consolidation. More like buyouts. Which would not be great for competition. Disney already owns too much intellectual property. As for affordability, no, I don't think it's that affordable. I mean, how many streaming services do you want to pay for? On the other hand, coming from someone who lives in the UK, I will tell you that in the UK, all TV owners generally pay a hefty license fee. It's around £150, which works out as US$200 a year, about. So, count yourself lucky. Because even if you were to subscribe to several services, you wouldn't even come near that. In conclusion, I think it's a mistake to bundle too much stuff together. Like, for example, shows 
like C and For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus for £4.99 UK pounds a month rather than just £1 per show because one's a good show and one's a terrible show. Why should you pay for both? That is the current model with music streaming. You only play for the tracks you want nowadays. Whether you think that's a good thing or not is another subject entirely. I think, though, for TV and movies, it really should be a pick-and-mix system. You should only pay for the shows that you want to watch. I can't see anything like that happening through perhaps a third-party app because of licensing issues and competition between streaming services. It's a big, giant mess, and it will drive people towards either signing on for a particular show than signing off when that show finishes, or piracy simply because it's easier than having 10 different apps and accounts that you have to keep track of. So that's what I think about streaming services at the moment. I know it doesn't answer the question fully, but I only have so long. I hope I have at least done a fair job in tackling those questions. From my own point of view, of course. If you have your own views on the state of streaming, please let me know. Just go to RoyMartha.com and click on contact. Roy Martha, Roy, R-O-Y, Martha, M-A-T-H-U-R.com. Oh, and one more addendum to this section on streaming. This is one good thing that we can both think about, because I see that you saw are also a creative, an author like me, and perhaps this sheer volume of content will make more opportunities for us, the content makers. They do keep saying that the geeks won, don't they? And we're both genre writers, so yeah, let's hope that happens. And I'll let you know when I get an agent. I'm sitting on a movie set in a chair marked writer, swigging back a giant gin and tonic, chilling with Werner Herzog, and stifling giggles as I try not to mention Nosferatu the Vampire. Because even the great Herzog can make a stinker. And that's it for technology this week. And that last addendum brings us neatly onto the creative section. At the moment, I'm cleaning up my podcast feed, sprucing up the show notes, and linking the older shows to their corresponding notes. It's an ongoing process, but it does mean that if you go back to the first few recordings of this podcast you should now be able to access the show notes. So I am doing it from the newer shows, and I'm doing it from the older shows, and hopefully I'll meet somewhere in the middle, and at some stage all those show notes will be accessible. Now, we've talked about Google slightly negatively today, and we are going to continue to do so, because I have received YouTube copyright strikes. As you 
may or may not know, I convert my podcasts to YouTube videos as a way of reaching a wider audience. Unfortunately, YouTube has sent me a copyright notice and have also blocked one of my videos. Well, when I say videos, I mean audio with a bit of animation. The reason for that is because of clips and trailers, and unfortunately, since the beginning of my podcasting life, I have used clips and trailers as a fundamental way of talking about media. Taking them out now would destroy my content. So, sadly, from now on, no more clips. I'm just so glad that I'm not a proper YouTuber or blogger anymore, and the other thing is... I only have 19 subscribers on YouTube, compared to thousands of podcast listeners per month, according at least to AW Stats and this month. So it isn't really a problem at the moment, but it does make me rethink whether I will ever upload another Crash podcast to YouTube. I don't know what they're doing. They are really shooting themselves in the foot both YouTube and the content owners, because playing a trailer in your podcast is a big ad for that particular movie or TV show. I don't know why they're doing it. There are still lots and lots of proper YouTube videos that play trailers in their entirety and don't really add any value to them other than putting their own logo into those repurposed trailers where I talk around them and talk about the content. So I'm not really sure what they're trying to do. But it does come back to what we were saying earlier about how if you use any online service that you don't pay for yourself and own, then you are at the mercy of that service. And that goes for anything. I read earlier today that you can also receive copyright notices on Twitter, on Facebook, on any of the services. I don't know what the solution is for video producers because it isn't easy to self-host video as it is to self-host audio. If you are a video producer having problems, let me know. But this has been going on for years, so it's not exactly a new problem. I'm a little bit upset, but I'm not devastated. I would probably be in a very different mood if I had received letters from lawyers about my podcast. But that hasn't happened yet, so at the moment it's no biggie yet. Let's end on a more positive note and talk about cartooning. I am learning to cartoon. You know, draw little free four-panel comics the type that you usually see in the back of newspapers, or you used to do anyway in the UK, and in other countries as well. At the moment, I am fairly bad, but I'm not terrible. I always doodled a lot, and I thought I'd move from doodling to actual cartooning, which is more art. I am getting better. I've got a book from the library. The main issue at the moment is time. But I'm trying to do something apart from writing and podcasting and music once a week. And I really like Schultz. And I really like the guy who does the Calvin and Hobbes thing. I used to like the Dilbert cartoon. I like a lot of those back-of-the-newspaper cartoons. 
and this is my way of joining the club. But it is time-consuming. I will let you know how that goes. And that is it for today. This was a longer show than usual, which means a lot of editing tomorrow. Oh dear. The show that you are listening to that is currently called Captain Roy's Rocket Radio Show is produced, presented, and edited by me, Roy Martha, a writer. Martha is spelt M-A-T-H-U-R. You can find more about me or get in touch at RoyMartha.com. For further reading, there's a link to the show notes in the description of this episode. If you want to help, please review and rate the show on whatever platform you listen and recommend it to a friend. We like friends. You were listening to episode 288, recorded on Sunday, the 10th of November, 2019, but ending on Monday, the 11th of November, 2019, at 47.48 past midnight. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Bye!